You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Rhett, and I want to start today uh, by reading the opening sentence from a New York Times article that was written the day after Southwest Flight 1380 and made an emergency landing on April 17th. And it says this, it says, tens of thousands of feet above the earth, the passengers clasped hands with strangers, prayed together, and got ready to die. Now, if you don't know about this flight, then uh, what happened on this flight was an engine blew uh, about 20 minutes into the flight, and shrapnel from the engine shattered one of the side windows, and it depressurized the entire cabin. So this turned uh, the state of the the plane into panic and chaos, and um, there was one fatality from the woman that was next to the window, but eventually the pilot was able to navigate and make an emergency landing in Philadelphia and and save the passengers and the crew and... um, Some of the people on the plane were interviewed uh, after the flight about the ordeal, and this is what a few of them said. A pastor said this. He said that I grabbed my wife's hand, and I started praying, Dear Jesus, send some angels. Save us from this. I thought we were goners. And then he sent this text to his mom and dad who were watching their three kids, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And he said, Pray plane blew an engine, we're going to try to land. Tell the girls we love them and that Jesus is with them always. And another passenger said that, if this is your will, God, please let me go quickly. Don't let me suffer. Said you were holding on to whoever was next to you. Another passenger, Marty Martinez, actually paid for Wi-Fi in the middle of the chaos and started a Facebook Live, the event, as kind of a final goodbye and He said that all I could think about when I was on that plane was how my life was being taken away from me. And he said he saw the person next to him writing a goodbye letter to his friends and his family. And so church, here's a scenario that's not a hypothetical. It's a real life. You have 144 people from all walks of life, from a Lutheran pastor to people that have same-sex partners, all thinking that this is the end of their life. Now, regardless of of what they believe or their lifestyles, what we can assume is that these were all decent people. We know that there weren't any criminals that we know of on the plane, so what we would essentially say is that these are good people. These are good people that were on this flight, but what if the scenario had played out different? What if they wouldn't have made it? So with 144 people, what happens after they die? Well, we say, well, they're, they're good people, so all good people go to heaven, right? And that's the topic that we're diving into today as we kick off this four-week series called The Way I See It. And, and what we're doing in this series is we're looking at some of these commonly held beliefs and ideas and viewpoints These ideas are stuff that impact our life. They impact the way we see the world and how we operate in it. And whether we formalize these ideas or not, they cause us to see life in a certain way. Now, now these ideas and opinions are stuff that we've picked up either from culture, we've picked up uh, from media, social media, uh, maybe we picked it up from our upbringing, but the reality is that we all have them. 
Now, these, these ideas that form the way we see it are what we call worldviews. Now, that might be a new phrase for uh, some of us here, but essentially what that means is that all of us hold ideas and opinions about our world, and those ideas and opinions impact the way we see it and the way we live in it. And that's what this series is all about. The series is all about looking at certain worldviews and then investigating and diving into the reality, the truths, and even the logic behind them. So to give us a better idea of this concept of worldview, James Sire gives this definition. He says, a worldview is a set of presuppositions which we hold about the basic makeup of our world. Now, now what that means is that our worldviews are essentially a set of assumptions that we make about our world, and these assumptions can be either partially true, entirely true, or even entirely false. And even with these assumptions, we're always continuing to grow in these worldviews, and our circumstances, our experiences can change and even formulate the way we see it. And a circumstance that can change it could be uh, as small as, as a conversation with a coworker, or it could be as big as losing a loved one. But what we do as a people is that we keep these in our back pockets, and then we pull them out to help navigate circumstances, navigate our life when we need them. And so today what we're doing is we're looking at the way we see the afterlife and how do we know where we go when we die. And as an important of a question that this is, I think a lot of the times as people, we don't like to think about it. So what we do is we just hold on to an assumption that we have in our back pocket, but we never really flesh it out. Um, I'm going to venture to say that uh, the year 1989 was a very formative year uh, for many of your, your worldviews on, on this topic of all good people go to heaven. And it's not because Bobby Brown came out with the song, My Prerogative, and uh, y'all just going to choose your own way. And um, for the younger folks, if you don't know who that is, it's not because Taylor Swift was born in 1989. <laughs> but in 1989, there was an animated movie that came out entitled All Dogs Go to Heaven. And a lot of you remember that movie. And as a, a quick side note, I'm, I'm just surprised that in, in a world where we're so hypersensitive about making sure that everyone feels equal, that no one's made a movie about all cats going to heaven either. <laughs> now, y'all, y'all know that that's, uh, that's, that's not even logical or biblical true, so no one's going to make that movie. So I'm just joking if you're a cat lover, so... There's a feline, there's a lion in heaven. I don't know of any canines, so. Um, but there's all sorts of things in our culture uh, that impact our worldviews and the way we see things. And uh, some of you might be here today and, and your worldview is still being formed and, and you might be watching a TV show right now that just came out called The Good Place that is impacting the way you see it. Now, I don't want to ruin this show for you, but um, apart from talking about your flatware difference, uh, the premise of this show is that there are four bad people who've made it accidentally into the good place. Now, this good place has everything that they want, from Ted Danson from Cheers as their host, to a yogurt stand that has unlimited yogurt, and for the Seinfeld fans, we know it's probably all fat-free, right? And then to kind of make sure that I get a sitcom reference for every generation, for the millennials, this is like being on the Jersey Shore 24-7. <laughs> All right, you laugh. Yeah, people that watch that show, um, 
I just want to tell you, we have a prayer team at the end of service that would love <laughs> to pray with you. Just, just kidding. Nothing wrong with a little GTL. Sweet Moses. Um, but our, our world is enthralled with this idea of where do you go when you die, so much so that it makes a hit kids movie out of it, it makes a hit sitcom out of it. And, um, but what happens is they never really dive into the real implications of the reality behind this question. And I think as a people, we kind of do the same thing because it's a, it's a little bit of a sensitive and a scary topic. So instead, we just kind of just hold on to our assumptions that we've never really tested. So besides all dogs, what about people? Do all people get to go to heaven? Who gets to decide who gets in? Is it the good ones? Is there a certain standard that we have to reach to make it to heaven? Well, I think Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible or the Bible app, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. And Romans is a letter that's uh, written by Paul around 57 AD, and he's writing it to the church in Rome. And I think starting in verse 9 and kind of following, he addresses this topic of all good people go to heaven uh, pretty directly on. So verse 9, it says this. It says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? It says, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So Paul was a Jewish man that uh, even at a point claimed himself to be one of the best Jews. And so what he's doing here is he's asking these rhetorical questions to himself and to the Jewish people when he uses this word, we. And he says that, comes to this conclusion that there is no advantage for those. Now if you know anything about the Jewish people, you know that these were the people that if there was a standard to get to heaven, these people would have been the, the prime of the crop. They would have been the ones that made it in and set that standard. But what Paul does at the end of this verse is that he levels the playing field and he concludes that there is no advantage for the Jews. And he says that Jews and Gentiles, which included everyone else in the world, he said, we're all alike. He said, we're all sinners, we're all broken, and we're all under the power of this thing called sin. So he goes on in verse 10 through 18, and, and using some Old Testament passages, he lays out the condition of all humanity. Verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this doesn't exactly give you the, the warm and fuzzies about the human condition and about all humanity, but Paul's trying to get across a very real point here that no matter what we say we believe, what we say we is our standard, that all of us fail to hold to those standards every moment of every day. See, Paul's trying to show us that as much as our intentions may be to be good and to do good, that we aren't perfect. Welcome to the club, right? 
And that's why places like this exist and, and the church exists in Kingsway is because we want to be a place that imperfect people like you and like me can come and connect with other imperfect people so that we know, hey, we're not in this thing alone. And then we get to come and we get to connect with a perfect and a holy God who then wants to take us from our imperfection say, let me change you, let me transform you, and each day make you more and more like me. But this leads us to the question that we're asking today, that if none of us are 100% perfect all the time, then how good is good enough? How good is good enough? Is it 80% good? I mean, that's above average. Is it 70%? So you're kind of in the middle your average. Is it 60%? You're kind of toeing the line a little bit, but you're not failing completely. Are we graded on a curve? When people like Mother Teresa have set that curve too high for us? What, what good deeds do we need to do to get to heaven, to get the passing grade? Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, my family and I went out to eat with some friends, and um, we go to pay for our bill, and the waiter brings it and he says, oh, it's been covered. And there's a thank you on there. Um, and said, hey, thanks for all you do at Kingsway. So I assume someone recognized me walking in and said, hey, we want to pay for that guy's bill. If that was you, I first want to just say thank you. But then I also want to acknowledge that you might not have recognized that we were actually meeting other people there. And that person ended up paying for 11 people's bill that day. And so thank you for that. But I just want to stand before you all and acknowledge that I admit I do eat a lot at times, <laughs> but I've never eaten $154 of chicken and rice in one setting. <laughs> never done that. But that's a good deed, right? That was a great deed. It was a, a great thing that they did, but just paying for $154 of uh, arroz con pollo gets you into heaven? Probably not. But what it will do is it'll get your favorite song sung here on a Sunday morning, so... <laughs> I just I want to throw that out there. Um, and just as a, a general disclaimer, um, if anyone has Pacers season tickets, I know, I know a couple guys on the worship team that would love to accept your good deeds graciously. So um, I'm going to get struck down for doing this for wrong gain. Um, but, but here's this issue with this question of how good is good enough. And it's this, is that we all have different definitions of good. We all have different definitions of this word good. And who gets to define what good is? See, what ISIS believes is good is very different from what most of the rest of the world believes is good. What one political party believes is good is very different than what another political party believes is good. To bring it even a little bit closer for those who are married, what your wife believes is good, you all know where I'm going, is always good. Men, you gotta learn that one. That's, it's, it amazes me every single time that I don't learn that, we don't learn that, so we see it. The way we see it is that, yeah, I, I believe in it, but it's not impacting the way I operate yet, so. Um, but even take it down to restaurants. Think about that. What one person says is a five-star restaurant for example, Sushi Club off of 10th Street with the all-you-can-eat sushi. Another person drives by and says, there is no way that thing is good. It's still just an old Pizza Hut. <laughs> now, 
we might be getting into semantics here, but you all get my points, that our, our definitions of good can be different, and, and our definition of good can even change as we grow and, and maybe change as we experience the health code violations of said restaurant. <laughs> but, all right, we're getting off track here, but they change, they can even change as we grow up. So what you thought was good as uh, a kid and a teenager is probably very different than what you think is good as a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, and a 50-year-old. So what do we do with this? I think Paul starts to give us some clarity. So let's continue in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So we say, well, maybe it's the law uh, which includes the Ten Commandments. It includes a lot of other laws. He says, maybe that's our measuring line. Maybe that's the standard. And, and Paul kind of lays it out clearly here. He says, he says, no, no one will be good enough. And he uses the words declared righteous. No one will be good enough by simply following the law. So then you've got to ask, well, God, then why would you give it? Why would you give us this law? Is this some sort of game of cat and mouse that you're playing with us to say, hey, here's something that will get you close, but you never fully reach And Paul says, no, no, that's not it. He says, God gave us the law to make us aware of our sin. But even beyond that, not just to make us aware of our sin, but to make us aware of a God who wants to cover it, and a God that wants to connect with us. So even when God gave the law, he knew that we would be unable to reach the standard. So what he did is he said, I'm going to give you a way to give sacrifices and to atone for breaking the law in order to keep our relationship in right standing. So essentially what God says is, hey, here are great truths to live by, that are the perfect way to live, but I created you all. I know you all. I've experienced this before. I know you guys aren't going to be perfect. So here's a way to stay connected to me. Here's a way to keep our relationship connected. And God doesn't give us the law as a conditional standard, but he gives it to us to keep us connected to him. He wants a relationship with us, and he made a way for us to have that relationship. And uh, you may be here today, you may be watching online, thinking, well, I don't, I don't really need God in my life. You know, a friend invited me to, to come today with them, or they shared a link with me online, and I'm watching online. And what I want to encourage you with is that I want you to just start today by holding your life up to this standard and saying, how do I measure up? but don't let it in there. God wants to connect with you, and he wants to invite you to say, that's just the starting point. Here's how to change it. Here's how to make a relationship. And and church, if this was such an important topic for God to make a way for people to connect, to invite them into a relationship, then as a church, we need to be doing the same thing, inviting others to be in that relationship with God and to connect with God So we look at all these issues and these questions and they uh, begin to poke some pretty big holes in the all good people go to heaven theory. So we say, well, well, maybe it's about fairness. You know, maybe it's about my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds. And the reason that we don't believe that as Christians is because Jesus never taught it and he never modeled it. 
I want to share a couple stories uh, about Jesus and his, his interaction with a, a couple people that kind of blow up this whole idea of all good people go to heaven. The first one comes out of Luke 14, and uh, Jesus has a conversation with a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler asks him this question. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Greek word there says, what must I do to acquire, to gain eternal life? What do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus responds, and he says, well, you've got to follow the commandments. He says, well, I followed all of those perfectly since I was a child. So Jesus turns, and he says, well, there's one thing that you lack. He says, I want you to sell everything you own and come and follow me. And it says, as the rich young ruler walked away sad. Now, the issue here with this guy is that he was making an effort to be good, to make his own standards on his conditions. I'm going to try, try, try so much that Jesus said, you're not giving me room to be in your life, to be in your heart. You're just trying to reach this effort by following all the commandments. Now, fast forward to Luke chapter 23, and Jesus is on a cross, and he's being crucified between two criminals, and one of the criminals turns to him and says, Jesus, remember me when you get to heaven. Now, here's a guy that has done some pretty bad things and bad enough to get him crucified and and paid the penalty of death on this cross, so he's got to be thinking to himself, man, there is nothing I can do to make up for what I've done. This is the end of my life. How am I going to fix this? So I don't think he expects even to be in heaven, but he just says, Jesus, when you get there, just think about me. Remember me when you get there. And it says that Jesus turned to him, and he said, I tell you the truth, that today you will be with me in paradise. So here are these two stories about two very different people. Some guy that followed all the commandments, yet doesn't get to heaven, and someone who's Life has led to crucifixion on a cross. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in heaven. You'll be with me today in paradise. We say, well, that's, not only is that not fair, that's not even logical. That doesn't even make sense. And that's exactly the point, because if it was fair, then none of us would be good enough to reach the standard to get to heaven. But Jesus doesn't want that for us. I'll use the example of uh, my oldest son to kind of look at this idea of fairness. and um, So my oldest is, is four, and a couple years ago, he decided to draw a picture of his good old dad. Um, he said, that's a nice gesture. The issue was he drew it on our brand new couch. <laughs> now, it was a great picture, I'm sure, but you'd think he'd learn his lesson, but just a couple months ago, he decided to expand his portfolio uh, and continue his work on uh, this kind of cabinet dresser thing that we have in our house. So I brought you all a little video to show his artwork here. So you can see kind of a racetrack line going down this way on top of this cabinet. And this uh, blob thing is, I think, what he sees in my face now, two years later down the road. Um, But what would be fair in this scenario? What would be fair in this scenario? Well, in my mind, I say, well, he's destroyed our living room set, so old boy's got to get himself a job and start making monthly payments, right? (laughs) Pay it off. That's that's a fair thing to do, but but we know that's that's not reality. That's not something that he can even pay back. So so instead, what we do is we forgive him and we say, hey, buddy, let's not do that again, and we move on with what parents call memories. 
right? Great memories. A new living room set, great memories. Um, but this is how we stand before God, as we stand with a debt that we can't repay. And if the scale is fairness, then it leaves us all in a pretty bad spot. But Paul gives us an answer here in the next few verses. Verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. They tell about this righteousness of God. Said that this righteousness, this goodness, this perfection is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all of you are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we've been forgiven freely by grace, by the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's not about an effort that we can make. So it's not about fairness anymore, but instead it's about forgiveness. And here's what I want you to take away from today. It's, it's not that good people go to heaven, but forgiven people do. Good people don't go to heaven, but forgiven people do. Paul lays it out. He said, it's, it's not about your good deeds that are going to get you to heaven. But it's about being in a relationship with a good God, and his name is Jesus. He says, the deeds will follow, the goodness will follow, but it starts with connecting with a good God. I want to close with this this morning. A few months ago, uh, my grandma, 87 years old, passed away, and a couple days before she passed, my mom said that she asked if I would officiate her funeral, um, and my, my grandma was a, a great woman. She had seven kids. She took care of all of them, even down to the last couple months before she died. But if I'm honest with you, I don't know where my grandma stood with God. I don't know where she stood. You know, she'd been baptized as a kid. She went to church growing up, but hadn't in the later part of her life. And when I was saved 15 years ago, I wrote her a letter. I said, Grandma, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to pray and read your Bible, see how he can change your life. And she would tell my mom that I carry this letter around with me in my purse everywhere I go. And I saw that letter a couple weeks ago, and... Um, what do you do? What do you do when you're supposed to stand in front of friends and family and say, well, I know that she was good. I know she was great. I know that God is good and he's perfect and holy, so I know she's in a better place. And I want to believe that with all of my heart. But it's not what Jesus taught. It's not what he taught, so... My sister and I visited her a couple weeks before she passed, and um, on the way home, driving with my sister, she said, hey, Grandma leaned in, and she said, Kira, I'm dying, and I'm scared. And my fear today is that there are many of us 
that stay in that spot. We stay scared and fearful what's going to happen after death because of how much we've done, how far we've tipped the scale. Have I gone too far? And what I want you to hear today is that Jesus said it's not about how far you've gone, but how much I have forgiven you. It's about how much I have forgiven you. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, right before this chapter, Paul asks another rhetorical question where he says, are you presuming on the kindness and on the forbearance and on the patience of God? And, and what he's asking here is, are you assuming that because God is kind and he's loving and he's good, that everyone's just going to get in, that you'll get in? And he kind of asks, he says, don't presume on that. Don't assume that's how it's going to be. But he says, but instead... Look at the kindness, look at the love, look at the forgiveness, and let it lead you to repentance. Let it lead you to a life that says, you know what, Jesus, I see how awesome and loving you are, and because of that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow you, and I want you to change my life and transform my life. And I wanna experience that full assurance, not only for the life after this one, but I wanna experience the full forgiveness and the full freedom for the life here. So what I want to do is, is we're going to go into a time of communion. And um, as we do this this morning, um, if you're new with this, what this represents is this is the body and the blood of Jesus. And, and the bread represents his body that's broken for us. And the blood, the, the blood that was poured out, the juice for our freedom and our forgiveness. And if you're a believer here today, I want to invite you to take communion and and do it this morning. You might be here saying, you know what? You know, I believe in Jesus. I've been following Jesus, but I haven't fully experienced that forgiveness. I've still been trying for years to be good enough to be good enough. And what I want you to do when you take communion today is to say, thank you for this sacrifice. Thank you for this forgiveness. And sit in that. Experience that fully. Let God forgive you. Forgive yourself for the things that we've done. And if you're someone who's, you know, I'm not all in on Jesus yet, I'm just kind of checking this thing out, what I want you to do is I want you to let the trays pass. I want you to take these next few moments just to sit and to pray and to start that conversation with God. To say, God, this is, this is where I am. This is how I see things. You know, I, I don't fully know this, but what I know is I'm not perfect. Anyone that, that knows me would tell tell you that but maybe it's the, today's the day that I want to believe that you paid the price for my sin on the cross and I want to try to follow you Jesus and if it's that something that you're praying over these next few minutes then I want to encourage you after we sing today and, and Amos dismisses us to come down and talk to one of us we would love to help you connect and to grow and do this thing together you're not in this alone. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the reality that it's not about how good we are, Lord, but about how good you are, and that you continue to make a way to stay connected to us. Lord, none of us are, are perfect. None of us can do this on our own. 
I pray this morning, Lord, that we would experience your love and your forgiveness, that we would take these elements that represent your sacrifice and your freedom, the grace that was freely given that justifies us, that we could fully experience life with you, both in the one after this life and both here on earth, Lord. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your love and your sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.